How far would you go to take a stand for your beliefs? What would you be willing to give up? These are questions Washington floral artist Baronel Studsman had to answer beginning in 2013. Perhaps you are familiar with that situation. That is when she declined to create custom floral arrangements celebrating the same-sex wedding of a friend and longtime customer because it conflicted with her religious beliefs. Baronel ended up in an eight-year lawsuit and risked losing nearly everything she had built over a lifetime, including her business and her life savings. But Baronel was not easily intimidated. Her strong Christian faith gave her the strength she needed to stand up for her beliefs. So a year ago, in the form of a letter, she penned these words regarding her experience. This week, I have put to rest the last legal considerations for a decision my husband Daryl and I made nearly a decade ago. It's hard to believe that so many years have passed since my dear friend Rob came into my flower shop and asked me to do something I'd done many times before, design a unique personalized arrangement of flowers to celebrate a special event in his life. I had always been delighted with those creative opportunities, just as I'd always been happy to sell him bouquets of flowers. But this time, the special event he was celebrating was his marriage to another man. And that was a line I could not cross, even for friendship. I am a Christian, and I believe the Bible to be the word of God. That word makes it clear that God loves all people so much that he sent his son to die in their place. And it also teaches that he designed marriage to be only the union of one man and one woman. I could not take the artistic talents God, God himself gave me and use them to contradict and dishonor his word. So as gently as I could, I recommended some other floral artists whom I knew who would do a great job for Rob. My decision was not intended to hurt him, but to honor my sincere and deepest beliefs. We hugged and he left, and I thought we, met, we, we remained friends who kindly disagreed. What followed were lawsuits filed against me in a concerted effort to either force me to change my religious beliefs or pay a devastating price for believing them including being threatened with the loss of my home, my business, and my life savings. The confrontations have led me on a long and winding nine-year journey through the legal system, though it was a journey where Christ walked with me every step of the way. At one point, those aligned against me suggested I could keep my shop if I paid a fine and promised to create custom designs for same-sex ceremonies in the future. I refused because I could not betray my conscience. I also worried about what kind of precedent my paying up would set for others facing similar circumstances. Today, that journey ends, and I am at peace. I have treated those who persecuted me with respect. I've never had to compromise my conscience or go against my faith. I've met so many, many kind and wonderful people who've generously offered me their prayers and encouragement and support. Most of all, I'm thankful that God's love has sustained me through all of the trials and challenges of these last few years. There is a great deal of division at work in our country today, but God has shown me again and again that his love is stronger than the anger and pain so many are feeling. 
and he's given me countless opportunities to share his love with others along the way. If you've prayed for me, thank you. If you've hated me, well, I've prayed for you. And finally, I wish Rob the very best. So the Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 3.12. He said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we don't often see as much persecution in America as they do across the world. And we're not going to talk about all those things. And the reason actually why I even began with the, the example, the illustration here of Baronelle is because that's somebody in our own country. And that's the reality of the kinds of things that Christians in America are beginning to face more and more. We aren't probably, at least currently, facing death or imprisonment, although um, it was in Canada. You remember the pastor that went during, during COVID. So we're not at that point yet, but ladies, we don't know how much longer we have. We don't know when we may be facing some of these things. So whether you are experiencing persecution now or whether the Lord might bring that into your path later on, we need to know how to walk it out rightly. And so anyways, I'll just keep going here. When we think of persecution, our minds tend to jump to the extreme, to those who have been martyred. Like when you think of persecution, do you think of, of Rome and the early Christians or the Reformation? A lot of times that's where we go in our thinking. But in reality, persecution often comes from those we love and trust, particularly, I think, in our American experience. Like in the case of Baronel, the man who turned against her was a longtime customer and who, someone whom she had considered to be a good friend. Sometimes those who turn against us are coworkers with whom we believe we have a good relationship. And so I wanted to share with you Tiffany Beachy. Are you guys all familiar with Tiffany Beachy? Some of you new people may not, but she, we are actually going to be sending her to PNG as a missionary, which is just so exciting to me. But anyways, she's going to be going, and we are, we are sending her to do that. But what you don't know if you're new here is that she actually lived here for quite a few years. And as she came to grace, the Lord used the teaching and, and fellowship of the people here at Grace to bring her to salvation, which she thought she had when she started coming to Grace. She thought she was a believer, and actually, I had a conversation with her early on, and we were talking, she's a scientist. So she views every, viewed, viewed everything from the perspective of the beauty of the birds and all of this. And we had this conversation about, about going into the Amazon and saving the animals and saving the, the birds and all of this. And I thought, I think maybe we're missing something here. Because in her mind at that time, that was really more important than the people. And yet God through the teaching of his word, brought her to true salvation, and now we get to send her out to New Guinea, which is just so exciting. So anyways, I called her the other day and I said, Tiffany, I'm talking about persecution, and I want you to remind me of the details of what happened in your experience at Tremont. So anyways, this is just a very brief synopsis of that, but again, I'm wanting to help you think through what are the things that are close to us. This is right here in our own backyard, that, that these kinds of things are coming in. And not to mention, I know many of you deal with things in family and stuff like that. 
So she worked as a manager of science, literacy, and research at the Great Smoky Mountain Institute at Tremont until four years ago. Through a series of events, her relationship with Jesus Christ came under scrutiny by both her coworkers and her bosses. Though she tried to follow the religious guidelines of her workplace, those she worked with became uncomfortable with her Christianity. In a meeting, it became clear to one of her bosses that Tiffany didn't embrace the secular science position of evolution and instead believed in creation, holding to a young earth position. Now, Tiffany had never tried to hide any of this, but of course, as she grew in her Christianity and knowing the Lord, of course, some of this was going to change along the way as well. She was informed that it was unacceptable for her to hold a differing scientific worldview from that of the Institute. Though she wasn't fired at that time, it became evident that the coworkers and bosses with whom she had previously had positive working relationships no longer believed she was a good fit for her position. Though they couldn't immediately fire her because of discrimination laws, it was evident that she was no longer embraced as one of the group. Her relationship with her Savior was not accepted. Over the course of several months, it became apparent that she needed to find a new job because always living on the edge, trying to appease people who disdained the God she loved was taking a toll on her health and, of course, the relationships at work and, and a variety of things. So that is a living example close to us of true persecution. It about broke her heart when she had to leave grace and she had to move to Virginia, and yet God has never forsaken her, and God has, has strengthened her, prepared her for going to the mission field now, which we all get to rejoice in. So in addition to customers, friends, and coworkers, persecution can come by way of our families. Luke 21, 16 says this, But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And though this is not a reality in the United States, it has been a reality for centuries in other countries and still is ongoing in many countries today. Over the course of this semester, our little small group has often discussed the difficulties of loving and forgiving extended family who snub, ridicule, and reject us because of Christ. It is painful. It is confusing. It is difficult. It is discouraging. And we can easily lose our way in the midst of it. One of the most challenging questions to answer is, why do they treat me so badly when I am seeking to love them? If we aren't keeping in mind the teaching of Scripture, that thought goes through our mind. All I'm doing is loving them. I am being kind to them. And what do I get in response? I get rejection. I get hatred. I get unkindness. As we just read, Scripture promises that we will be persecuted if we seek to be godly. Today, as we approach our final topic of study on the Beatitudes, we discover that if we live in a godly manner, practicing the first seven Beatitudes that we've been talking about all semester, it will result in persecution against us. And Jesus taught this from Matthew 5, 10 through 12, and this is the passage for today. Well, that our 
our chapter was on, we're going to have a different passage that we're going to look at. But I wanted just to remind you so that it's fresh, fresh in your mind. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So since the Beatitudes outline the path to godly living, we can be sure we will be persecuted when we seek to live godly. It's going to happen. And oftentimes it happens within the relationships that we are most closely related to. They're the ones that see our pursuit of godliness. They're the ones that experience it. And when their hearts are hard against God and their hearts are hard against the gospel, they rebel against the truth because the gospel does what? It either draws or it repels one or the other. And so when we are living in a manner that reflects the gospel, it is either going to draw people to us because of Christ and draw people to Christ for salvation, or it is going to repel them not only from Christ, but but from us as well, because we are the ones that carry the beautiful good news of the gospel. Those who faithful... Oh, so Chris wrote this in the book, so I'm just quoting straight out of the book. Those who faithfully live according to the first seven attitudes are guaranteed at some point to experience the eighth. Those who live righteously will inevitably be persecuted for it. Godliness generates hostility and antagonism from the world. The crowning feature of the happy person is persecution. Kingdom people are rejected. So he went on to say later, Chris went on to say, the joyful contentment that characterizes blessedness is possible even in a state of persecution. We must consider the inevitability of persecution why it occurs, and the implications of it in our lives. So as I was pondering which passage to teach, the one sentence that really stuck out to me is the one I just read to you. The joyful contentment that characterizes blessedness is possible even in a state of persecution. Can we truly be content when we are experiencing persecution. So I could have gone to all different passages in the Gospels. Of course, 1 Peter, chapter 2, chapter 4. There's lots of places we could have gone. But I decided to go with 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. So if you guys want to go ahead and turn there, we'll read that. So 2 Corinthians 4, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. And it says this. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. 
So death works in us, but life in you. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of a background to 2 Corinthians so that you kind of have a little understanding of what is going on here. So 2 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul as a defense of his apostleship primarily. There's, of course, other things going on as well, but, but it is a defense of his apostleship. The Judaizers were trying to discredit his ministry and his authority as an apostle. So Paul is forced to write a defense of his Christ-given apostleship. Keep in mind the reason he had to defend the, this apostleship. It was, excuse me, I read that weird. Keep in mind the reason he had to defend his apostleship was because he was being persecuted by the Judaizers. The Judaizers were attacking his character with the intent purpose of destroying his testimony for the gospel. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted their own glory. They wanted people to follow them. And they did not want them to hear what Paul was saying because they would hear the true gospel and they would reject the false teachers. So naturally, they attack Paul and his character. It is interesting to note that he does not defend his apostleship in the way we would expect. Rather than listing his own qualifications, skills, giftedness, talents, or abilities, he instead talks of his weaknesses and his frailties. That seems like kind of an opposite way, like, okay, so wait a second, because you remember that at a different place, Paul explains, and I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and I was, I was like all these things that actually looked like great qualifications to a Jew. And he says, none of those things are important. But here he says, and in 2 Corinthians, he highlights his weaknesses. So rather than lifting, listing his own qualifications, qualifications, skills, giftedness, talents, or abilities, he instead talks of his weaknesses. Throughout the book, Paul is quite transparent about his wrestles in the ministry and his own personal weaknesses. He does not promote himself as a fearless, powerful, dynamic ambassador of Christ, preaching the gospel with flashy charisma and eloquence. Now, we look when we study the Apostle Paul, and we are somewhat in awe of, of who he was and his testimony for Christ. We love him because he loved Christ and he lived out the gospel so well, but Paul would have none of that. No, I am weak. That's what his claim to fame was. I am weak. He, he chooses not to boast in his accomplishments, but rather in his weakness with the intent purpose of giving all glory to Christ. In the face of his own persecution, he sought only to make Christ, his Savior, look great. So Paul's desire was to emphasize his weakness, his frailty, his limitations, because in that way the power and glory of Christ could be magnified. Paul desired to shift the gaze of the Corinthians away from himself to help them more clearly see the wonder, the splendor, and the majesty of Jesus Christ. He was not an apostle because he was worthy. He was an apostle because the one who called him was worthy. 
And he did not want anyone to miss that. Persecution and suffering humble us and reveal who we really are. And who are we really? Powerless, frail mortals who, in, who are entirely dependent upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul lived that. It was the testimony of his whole life. And so 2 Corinthians brings this into focus. You just read through the book, you're going to see him saying this over and over again. As we face suffering through persecution, it should be our desire, like it was Paul's, for Christ to be seen in us. Persecution evidences our weaknesses while highlighting Christ's glory and supremacy when we respond in righteousness. So we finally now get to our outline. So A is a striking contrast. This passage, which is about suffering and death, stands in stark contrast with the theme of glory so brilliantly developed by Paul in chapters 3 and 4. Paul, God's slave, the transmitter of the life-transforming, saving glory of God, is himself nothing more than a fragile jar of clay. He is subject to afflictions, bewilderment, persecution, and being struck down. That's from one of my commentators. So if we look at verse 7, what does verse 7 say? But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So this right here, we can't just skim across it lightly because what Paul is describing to us is, is kind of in this little metaphor here. He is explaining this weakness that he himself had as, as a human being. But then the glory of the treasure, which is the gospel. So number one, the treasure of the gospel. So treasure means something precious. Here it refers to the gospel. So if you look back, so just look up a couple of verses from where you were looking to verses four through six. Paul has just described the gospel and now refers to it as a treasure. So basically, he explains, starting in chapter 3 and in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 4, he's describing the glory of the gospel. And then what he does here is, verse 7 is really a transition verse that he's going to then go into the, into, uh, the other side of this. So he's talking about the glory of the gospel, and then he's, he's contrasting it with the weakness of the, the people, of the person who brings that gospel. So looking at 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, that's actually a reference to creation, actually, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So then, like I already stated, he makes this sharp contrast. We have this wonderful treasure of the gospel, but it is kept in earthen vessels. 
this beautiful eternal treasure of the gospel has been entrusted to jars of clay. We could say pots of clay. Have you ever had a little ceramic pot? What happens when you tip it over? It breaks. It chips. What happens if you take this pot and let it sit out in the winter and it's got dirt in it or it's been it's had moisture in it and that moisture freezes? The pot cracks. They have almost no value except for putting dirt in and planting our flowers. So number two is jars of clay. So the contrast between the treasure of the gospel and the jars of clay. So earthen means made of clay with the added suggestion of frailty. So from my commentary again, he says this, striking is the contrast between the radiant treasure of the knowledge of God in the heart and then the inexpensive and easily breakable receptacle that bears it, an earthen pot. Such vessels are both cheap and fragile, thus having no enduring value in their own right. Only their contents gives them worth. Okay, so think about what Paul's saying here. Only their contents gives them worth. It's the fact that we carry the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes us in any way valuable. It has nothing to do with us. We are not anything special. We are not anything powerful. We are nothing to write home about except for the gospel that God has entrusted to us. This is our most prized possession and we cannot keep it to ourselves. So just to give you a little bit of, of history with this, in Bible times, when they didn't have banks or safe repositories, they would bury their precious possessions in the earth or hide them in caves. They would often use clay jars for doing this. So have you ever read about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yes, we all know about those. These priceless manuscripts date back 2,000 years and were discovered in caves in the desert of south of Jerusalem. They were stored in, guess what, clay jars. Clay jars, of course, break easily. They are fragile. They are easily damaged. In fact, that's the way the scrolls were found. An Arab goat herder threw a rock toward the cliffs, trying to scare his goat back down the hill. The rock sailed through the opening in a cave, and the boy heard the sound of a jar breaking. Jars of clay are fragile. They break easily. And Paul is using that as an illustration of you and me. We are God's depositories for his treasure. Yet we are fragile and breakable and easily damaged. And I will go on to say that when these jars have cracks and chips broken out of them, when you put a light in them, what happens? The light shines forth. When we are under pressure, we are cracked and we are broken. The pressure comes against us. The light of the gospel should shine through us more brightly in our brokenness. 
in our chips and our frailties. And that's the whole point is that when we are not seeking glory for ourselves, when we are seeing ourselves as these earthen clay vessels, we are not seeking to take any glory for ourselves. How ridiculous for a clay pot to try and get any glory. Because what happens when that light shines out? You don't look at the pot. You're looking at the light. You're looking at the reflection. You're not looking at the pot at all. And then we go on further in our verse, and it says, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So number three, greatness of power is from God and not from us. So look again at verse five to see the contrast Paul is making. They preach Christ as what? As Lord, not themselves who were simply bond slaves. So Paul is saying, Christ is Lord. He is worthy of honor. He is the one in charge. He's the one worthy. We are nothing more than his bond slaves. They were slaves, but Christ was Lord. They were the vessel, the valueless clay pot, but they held the treasure, the light of the gospel through Jesus Christ. So commentary, Paul Burnett says this, Unpalatable as it may have been in Corinth, the truth was that God was leading his minister from place to place in humiliating suffering, replicating Golgotha wherever he went. The message of Christ crucified, which brought them life, was and must be born by one whose own existence was cruciform. I didn't know what that meant, so I looked that up so I can help you. It means in the shape of a cross. Because the glory is God's glory, the bear must be dependent on God, which indeed Paul's missionary sufferings caused him to be. So suffering through persecution allows the power of God to be put on display in our lives. In our sinful, frail humanity, we do not have the power to respond to persecutors with kindness, with patience, with love, or with grace. The sufferings of persecution teach us to be fully reliant on God, on our Savior Jesus Christ. Only as the Holy Spirit empowers us do we have the strength to refrain from retaliation. And listen, not just in our actions, but also in our attitudes and in our motives. Because we don't always retaliate to the point of action, but we oftentimes can retaliate in our minds, right? When someone harms us, we respond with hatred toward them, with unkindness in our thoughts. And instead, we need to, even in our thoughts, let the glory of the gospel influence our thoughts toward them. Because even then, God is glorified. The light shines bright. Because our thoughts determine our actions, right? So even if we don't intentionally choose to do something that's retaliating against someone, our demeanor, the look on our face, 
our heart attitude, the roll of our eyes, all of these things do not demonstrate the beauty of the gospel when we are mistreated. And that can only come through the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke 6.29 says this, Jesus wrote, Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. An unbeliever does not have the capacity to forgive 70 times 7. The person who does not know Christ does not have the Holy Spirit-inspired capacity to turn the other cheek. Neither does he have the desire to give his shirt in addition to his coat that has been confiscated. Though unbelievers can willingly suffer for a good cause, it is never motivated by a desire to magnify the glory of Christ. Underlying his actions are selfish, self-satisfying motives. So this is an example. A Muslim jihad suicide bomber is willing to blow himself up, but his motives are for what? Personal gain. By killing himself, he believes he will gain entrance into paradise. So he is willing to suffer, but it's for his own personal gain. It was interesting as I was doing research, like looking up examples and things like that on the internet, things that were talking about different religious groups, religious groups that are claiming persecution. Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Catholics, saying that they have been persecuted. But true persecution is toward a Christian because a Mormon and a Jehovah's Witness does not have the glory of the light of the gospel. And so they may experience people who don't like them, who don't like their religion, but it is not the same thing. Because the reason why a true believer, a true Christian experiences persecution is because those persecuting them are rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not want God. They hate God. And that is the difference. The motivation for a Christian is entirely different. A true Christian is willing to suffer the physical and emotional difficulties, heartaches, and pain of persecution because it provides an opportunity for the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to shine forth from them brightly. See, we should not disdain. Okay, so I'm telling you here not what I do well, but what Scripture tells me. <laughs> So I am telling it to you because this is a wrestle for all of us to, to say, yeah, bring on the persecution. Because when the persecution comes, that's when I should be shining out the beauty of the light of the gospel in my life. But that is the heart that we should have. We live out all those other beatitudes. And then it culminates in a desire for persecution for the sake of the gospel. There's no purpose in persecution in itself, but what it enables. What does persecution enable? It enables the light of the gospel to go forth brightly. This is an amazing opportunity for us 
So we desire not the persecution for the sake of persecution, but we desire the opportunity that the light of the gospel might shine brightly. Because why? What is the point? When the gospel shines brightly, it always does, like I already said, one of two things. It repels or it draws. And our heart's desire is that it would draw those who persecute us to the gospel for salvation. So John MacArthur said this, the persecution of the church demonstrates the triumph of saving faith. When you can survive the persecution and you can die a triumphant death confessing Christ Jesus and not denying him, there's a viability, a credibility, and a power to your testimony. And oftentimes we think about these kinds of things. At what point would we be tempted to deny Christ? When they are taking our children from us, would we deny Christ for that? When they're taking somebody near and dear to us that we love, would we deny Christ? But why would we do that when we truly know what's happening here? So let's take, for instance, a mother. You know, there's several of you in here with young children. If you were faced with having to give up your children or deny the faith, what would you choose? But here's the thing. If God should so choose to take those children, the light of the glory of the gospel would shine not only on the persecutor, but it would shine into the heart of those children. And they would see the value and worth of your Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not for naught. It isn't. You can trust your God. And I think there's probably not a harder thing for a young mother to think about than to have her children taken from her. And there's a story I won't get into back during the Inquisition when such a thing happened, and I'm sure it happened multiple times. But God is faithful. We don't ever have to deny him because the gospel will go forth. And maybe that would be the thing that would save your child, the opportunity you have. That was not in my notes. Goodness. Suffering righteously in persecution magnifies God's greatness as it is proclaimed through weak, broken, and fragile humanity. God is not glorified in our strength. He is glorified in our weakness. So number four is God is glorified in our weakness. So later in our book, in chapter 12, Paul describes how God's power was displayed in his weakness. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, and I'm sure that many of you know this well, but I felt like I had to bring this into our study today because it's so critical to understanding how do we stand against the persecutors. So Paul wrote this, 
He said, and he has said to me, speaking of Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with what? Persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When he is weak in his humanity, the power of God is strong flowing through him. By the grace of God poured out in his life, Paul was given the strength for all God called him to do. Even in the midst of suffering and persecution, God's power was made evident in Paul's life because Paul was weak. Amid his suffering, his physical limitations that were so apparent, God's glory was magnified and the gospel went forth in power, transforming lives. It was God's grace that enabled the truth of Paul's next statements that we're going to read as we move on in our passage here. So we have four amazing paradoxes. So capital B on your outline is the paradoxes of Christian suffering that offer hope. And we have to keep in mind that as we read through these things, so, well, keep in mind God's grace, and then I'll talk about it in just a minute. So this is from a different commentary. It says, the general principle enunciated in verse 7 that we've just been looking at is here illustrated by a series of four paradoxical statements. These reflect the vulnerability of Paul and his co-workers on the one hand and the power of God which sustains them on the other. So this is what we have going on here. So verse, verses 8 and 9 says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Why? Look at all these things that he's talking about. Afflicted, crushed, uh, sorry, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but in all of these things, never, dis never destroyed. And all of those things, why? Because the grace of God is sufficient. The power of God was made strong in Paul's weakness. So I thought it would be helpful to look at some of the specific things that Paul is referring to here. So when we look at verses 8 and 9, he later in the book explains this, and he actually he actually mentions this in a few different ways in a few different places, and I'm only going to read from chapter 11, and I think you're probably familiar with this, but I think it's good as a reminder. When Paul is talking about his affliction and persecution and all of that, here are some of the things that he is specifically referring to, and in our passage, just in a more general way. So 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27, he says... <clears throat> 
I'm going to start at the beginning of the verse, even though that's alluding to something else, but you'll see as we get going. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if in, of, I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So when Paul is talking in our passage here today and referring to these things, these are some of the things that he's referring to. So when you think about this list, you can go back later and think it through a little bit more, meditate on it a little bit. When he is saying, but I I was never destroyed because the grace of God did not allow that to happen. God kept him. Now, if God determines our time, that's not the end of all things, is it? If God chooses to take us home, which he eventually did with the Apostle Paul, that doesn't mean that that God did not take care of him because where does he go? Into eternal glory in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's even better. And we know because Paul says that elsewhere. Oh, to go home and be with Christ is much better. So number one, afflicted but not crushed. So he says... Uh, He's afflicted, which means pressed like grapes to get the juice out. Metaphorically, it means to trouble or to be distressed. Paul was afflicted in every way, but he was not crushed because the grace of God was sufficient to supply all he needed to press on in desperate afflictions. So he's afflicted, but then he says, but I'm not crushed. So crushed means to compress, to cramp, Reduced to straits. So another commentator said this, because the treasure has been committed to earthen vessels, there is seeming defeat on one hand, yet perpetual victory on the other. There is weakness to all outward appearance, but in reality, incomparable strength. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. He means that he is constantly pressed by adversaries and difficulties, yet not completely hindered from uttering the message freely. This is an amazing thing. So at Philippi, for example, he was arrested and imprisoned. So he was afflicted, yet the gospel was not stopped, for the jailer and his household were converted. So we see right there in that example what Paul is talking about. One of the reasons we wrestle with the suffering we experience through persecution is because we focus more on what is temporal rather than what is on eternal. Paul was afflicted in the temporal earthly sense, but not crushed because he had an eternal perspective of the value of the gospel. Even in his physical suffering, the gospel still went forth and bore fruit in the lives of other people. So he was not crushed entirely because the very thing he was trying to accomplish was accomplished. So number two, he was perplexed, but not despairing. Or we could say bewildered, but not befuddled. There is a progression in Paul's lists. 
The difficulties and suffering become more and more acute with each comparison. So he starts with kind of the lightest, and then as he keeps going to the end, we see his last statement is about being destroyed, which he wasn't destroyed. So perplexed is to be at a loss with oneself, to be in doubt, to not know how to decide or what to do. So he says, we were perplexed, but then we were not despairing. So to be despairing is to be utterly at loss, to be utterly destitute of measures or resources, to renounce all hope or to be in despair. And I think almost every commentator that I read said the same thing, that these terms are actually a play on words in Greek which cannot be translated in English. So we can't fully grasp what he's trying to say here, but ultimately he's saying we are perplexed but not utterly perplexed. So there you go. When Jesus was preparing his disciples to evangelize the world, he warned them that they would be persecuted. They would be dragged before authorities, but they didn't need to worry about what they would say because the Holy Spirit would provide them with an answer at that time. They may be perplexed and doubted themselves, not knowing what to say but not utterly perplexed because the Holy Spirit would be their guide to help them know what to say. Luke 21, 13 through 15 is that, explains that. It's the passage talking about that. It says this, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to be prepared beforehand to defend yourselves. This is Jesus teaching his disciples. He says, don't prepare beforehand when you are experiencing persecution. Now, he's not saying just live for yourself and not prepare. They needed, obviously, to know the scriptures and all of that. But he says, you don't have to worry about that ahead of time, practicing, rehearsing, because I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. And I had to laugh because I was listening to a sermon by John MacArthur, and he said, he said, this is true. When I've, when I've been talking with somebody and, and up against Per, forms of persecution and he says later I'll listen to the recording and I'm like wow that was really amazing where'd that come from <laughs> but that's the reality of it when we are facing persecution God will give us through his spirit the things to say so we do not have to worry that we're, we're not going to say it right we know the word, we're in the word, we study the word, we seek to please the Lord in everything we do, and then he gives us what is appropriate in that moment. So number three, persecuted but not forsaken. So persecuted means to follow or press hard after, literally to pursue as one does a fleeing enemy. So it's very intense here to chase, harass, vex, and pressure. I think we can think to like those in the Reformation, Tyndale was hunted and hunted and hunted down. That's the idea of this kind of persecution here. It gives us the picture of hounds on a hunt, aggressively pursuing after the fox, this idea of persecution. And so then he says, persecuted, but what? Not forsaken. So forsaken conveys the sense of deserting someone in a set of circumstances that are against him. The idea is to let one down, to desert, to abandon, to leave in the lurch, to leave one helpless. And what is Paul saying? I'm persecuted. 
I am being chased in all of this, all these difficulties, but I am not without hope. I am not forsaken. The, it, this word also encompasses the meaning of someone in a state of defeat or helplessness in the midst of hostile circumstances. So he says, I am never forsaken. I'm never helpless in the midst of hostile circumstances. Never forsaken. Because God has promised he will never leave us or forsake us. The very reason Paul was never forsaken by God is because God forsook. This is a commentator as well, and I just loved this. He says, Paul was never forsaken by God because God forsook his son, the Lamb of God, that he might complete the perfect sacrifice for us. Does this not show the Father's infinite love for us sinners, that he would desert his only begotten son, our Savior, in his hour of greatest need when he was made sin for us? God will not forsake us because Christ took that. God will never leave us or forsake us. Paul's testimony in 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18 is this. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful testimony of exactly what he's talking about. Don't you love how so much of Paul's teaching and all these different books are all woven together? This is why we have to know the broad teaching of scripture. We have to be reading it. We have to know it because it's so much more impactful to us as we see all these different components of the word coming together and painting this beautiful picture for us to understand. Though we may be forsaken by those we love, by those to whom we pour out our lives again and again, our Heavenly Father will never forsake us, but we need to think about this in eternal terms. If we think about it only in temporal terms, we will feel forsaken when the world turns against us. The truth is, our eternity is secure. Our inheritance is being kept for us where thieves can't break in and steal and where rust and moths do not corrupt we must actively remind ourselves of our eternal hope. And this is why we need the body of believers. Because in our weaknesses, we are frail. And we need the encouragement and the love and the support of other believers that help us to stand firm together when we face persecution if we should so face persecution here in Maryville, Tennessee, like they have in so many other parts of the world, if we have not been drawn together before that time, we will come together then. 
because in the face of persecution, we need one another desperately. But when we are not experiencing persecution, we cannot live as though we don't need each other because we still need each other desperately. So number four, struck down but not destroyed. Struck down is to throw to the ground, prostrate. Destroyed, so actually, sorry, struck down is, is used as a metaphor that is taken from an athlete or a combatant. So it's that idea of being thrown to the ground when you're in a boxing match or something like that. So destroyed takes it a step further. So it is referring to losing the match when one is knocked down in the boxing match. So we have struck down, which is being thrown to the ground, and destroyed, which is losing. So you see the degrees there. Spurgeon said this, many a time the Christian wrestler is thrown by his foe, but he never has a final fall. As Paul, when he was stoned at Lystra, and left for dead, rose up again, and soon went on with his work. So the Christian, when, when he has been cast down by trouble, often seems to gain new life and vigor and to go on to serve his master even better than he did before. And so this is another, I didn't realize, well, I have a lot of quotes here this morning, but I felt like this, um, this uh, commentator sums up all of this so beautifully, so I'm going to read it to you. And he says this, You can catch the intensity of Paul's paradoxes by stacking the sufferings he endured in the earthen vessels in his body, squeezed, bewildered, pursued, knocked down. What abject weakness, but we have God's surpassing power, not squashed, not befuddled, not abandoned, not knocked out. What astonishing power. Again, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It wasn't that Paul in each case reached down into his soul and sucked it up and became the man. It was never his strength. It was God's strength. Paul's weakness was the occasion for God's power. Paul remained an earthen pot and a cracked pot at that, as his crumbling flesh allowed the power of God to so brightly shine. So then, as we wrap up our morning, see affliction, the dying of Jesus, and deliverance, the life of Jesus. So verse 10 says this, Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So this idea of the dying of Jesus that takes place in Paul's body is the affliction, the bewilderment, the persecution, and humiliation mentioned in verses 8 and 9 that we just were looking at. And then we have the light of Jesus on the other hand, which is the deliverance represented by the four but nots. So we have these things are happening, but not to this degree. Ultimately, we are not destroyed. So we have the 
dying of Jesus in the affliction, but the life of Jesus in his provision for us in the midst of that. So what does this look like for us? We are not persecuted like Paul, nor do we suffer to the same degree that Paul suffered. And yet, with that being said, whatever the suffering or trials are that we experience should reflect the life of Christ that is in us through the light of the gospel. Though we may be afflicted, we will ultimately be delivered. Even if not here on earth, we will be delivered into the presence of our Savior. And when we are afflicted, it offers an opportunity for the light of the gospel to shine forth brightly from us to those who persecute us, whether it be governing authorities, coworkers, friends, family. By God's grace, we are strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit to respond in righteousness in our weaknesses as clay pots, the glory of God is magnified through us. So lastly here is D. The death that worked in Paul brought life to the Corinthians. And this is the ultimate goal, right? Through the affliction, through the persecution, we have the opportunity to bring the light of the gospel that can give life to other people. Verse 12 says, So death works in us, but life in you. Paul suffered as a messenger of that good news that those to whom he came might have life, that Christ's death might be made possible for them. So, kind of as we truly wrap it all up, though we may face persecution, it offers the persecutor life in Jesus Christ through the testimony, your testimony of the gospel. Don't be discouraged, disheartened, depressed, or despairing if you are experiencing various levels of persecution. Instead, rejoice in the fact that your testimony made evident through the persecution offers those very people the eternal life through the gospel. Let's pray.